Part 1 of Confessions of Two Brothers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powis and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper, Section 1. It is the little thing, the unrehearsed gesture, the catch in the breath, the droop of the lip, the start of surprise, which really reveals. We may analyse ourselves in volumes and remain undiscovered, and then by a yawn, a tilt of the head, a sob of exhaustion, a flash of hate, we are betrayed and unmasked forever. It came over me yesterday that the whole secret of my being, of my happiness and my misery, was to be discovered in my hands. I speak as a biologist, not as a palmist. Under ordinary conditions, my consciousness does not penetrate to my hands. These curious human appendages remain inert, clumsy, helpless, heavy, dead. I have dead hands, the hands of a dead person. I cannot do the simplest thing with my hands, without a definite and concentrated effort of will. It is like working with clumsy tools, tools that require elaborate direction every time. I cannot tie my shoestrings, or post a letter, or light a match, without issuing a special mandate to my incorrigible hands. This is why they are always knocking over things, and dropping things, and tearing things. They are out of reach of the electricity of my being. My consciousness does not penetrate to where they hang, swinging so helplessly at the end of my arms. When I am lecturing, however, and this irritates my profoundest pride, for I despise the lecturing animal. My hands change completely, and my consciousness flows through them to the tips of my fingers. They become sensitive then, abnormally sensitive. I feel as I speak. And between them and the waves of my thought, there is a direct magnetic connection. Under ordinary conditions, my hands are the hands of a dead body. When I am lecturing, they are the hands of a lover, of a lover caressing his darling. Is that not a curious thing, a little thing? But more suggestive than much analysis. The general public is certainly not any darling of mine. And yet, when under the spell of addressing it, my fingers become the fingers of a lover. This does not mean that my emotions are kind. The emotions of lovers are not always kind. In reading what follows, the reader must be on the lookout for indirect betrayals and unmaskings. He must follow me suspiciously, guardedly, furtively. He must be prepared for that invincible human trick of using language to conceal rather than to reveal. I am ready to confess myself, as a man may be ready to throw himself into the water, but once in the water... The instinct of self-preservation compels him to swim. So I swim, on words, unless the reader's imagination is shrewdly alert to thrust me down into the truth. I should like to indicate here my recognition, deeper than they believe, of the sublime patience of those who have suffered from me. I make this signal, as it were, out of thick darkness, for in spite of the subtlety upon which I pride myself, I feel vaguely conscious that I have been dull and blind in certain relations, as a twisted seashell choked up with sand. The more one tries to analyse oneself, 
the more one is conscious of amazing paradoxes and inconsistencies which lurk under the simplest surface. I think, as compared with most, I am strangely simple in my dominant tendencies. It is because of this simplicity that a certain duality in me becomes so disconcerting. I fancy sometimes that my exterior appearance gives an impression of power and formidableness that is altogether misleading. Below this Roman despot look I conceal frequently a weakness, a shrinking, a timidity, an exhaustion of energy, a psychic disintegration of personality, natural rather to a slave than a master. The only person, as far as I know, who has really come to believe in this abandoned weakness concealed under the mask of domination is the admirable young painter Raymond Johnson, who in his mad picture of me, it needs a post-impressionist to find out these things, has compelled my material likeness to indicate the bewildered exhaustion of my soul. Perhaps it is because I have the soul of a slave that the great personalities upon whose creations I lecture have selected me among the rest as the most submissive medium for their revelations. Certainly they have a way of obsessing me, as if they were so many demons. There will be notes struck here and there in what follows, which will of necessity irritate and annoy many. I do not regret that I cannot. In a profound and indescribable manner, I feel that these things, these moods of almost vindictive rebelliousness, find their place and their justification in some underlying duality beyond the confines of rational logic. Criticism, protest, the will to destruction, even when exercised in frenzied helplessness against forces that cannot be destroyed, have their place in the world economy. The anger of the worm turning upon the universe may, in a larger synthesis, be nothing but the anger of one god with another god. And who can tell how necessary to the purpose of life are the quarrels of these immortals? I have tried to indicate in what follows my most permanent reactions to the world. But the reader of these pages must remember that the river is flowing even while we are pushing our way across it. And while there is life, there must be change. I long to be an Epicurean. But something always drives me on out of my pleasant cloister. I notice as a curious fact that many of the impulses that thus drive me forward are my own maddest obsessions, and yet in the violence of such pursuits I stumble upon seashores flooded with moonlight and am rewarded for obeying demons by encountering divinities. End of part one.